all the newbie gave me. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, welcome. And I just I just wanted to say something because today is actually the fifty second week we are in Acts, so it is one year that we've been in Acts. Uh, which doesn't really sound significant. It's not the first time we've taken a year to get through content. <clears throat> sorry, I coughed on this. I'm so sorry. Uh, it's not the first time we've taken a year to get through content, but I just want to take a moment because I think it is actually quite a testimony because uh, the Word of God is so important, and I think that it is actually a wondrous thing that we go through and celebrate that we've been in Acts for a 52 weeks. Um, So yeah, that's all I want to say. That's, it was more grandiose last night as I was thinking about it, but since it's cold, everything's just kind of <clears throat> nyquilly. Um, so yes, just praise God for faithful preaching of the word, that's all. Uh, the other, th- uh, I'll say that later. All right, let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for today. Um, I pray that you be with Justin as he delivers your word. I pray that you will be with us, uh, that no amount of medicine will keep us uh, asleep, that we would be awake, and that our souls would be active and engaging with your word. Uh, and in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm just going to pray for supernatural healing abilities from God so that I don't catch Jesse's ick. Um, of course, I have my own little <coughs> sniffles. Because uh, we were, you know, cleaning the house and stuff, getting ready for Friendsgiving, which you're all invited to. If you have forgotten, Friendsgiving is today. So you're welcome to come over after church. We're having like a little, it's kind of like our first, like, official, like, potluck. It's real Baptist of us. Um, so <laughs> you're welcome to come over after church for Friendsgiving. But we were cleaning, and so dust happens, and I don't do well with dust. So um, it'll all be settled for the time you get there, and it's all cleaned up now. But for me... I was there doing it. It's not. It's not good. I have my laser pointer today, which is exciting. So I'm going to point at things. Point, point, point. So we uh, have been formally in Acts for 52 weeks. In the actual book itself, we had two intro weeks, if you remember. Uh, what is this? Anybody know? Set up? Uh, maybe Hannah. Ah, because I was concerned it was some sort of tongue. No. Well, maybe. Maybe. We'll have to talk about transubstantiation at some other time. So, that's weird. It was just weird. Sorry. <laughs> We've been in Acts for 52 weeks. This week is our last week in the actual book of Acts. We're going to have to have one more week next week, and it's going to be an exciting week. You're going to have to come back next week to find out what happens after the book of Acts. Because our title is actually particularly about the way this book ends. Our title this week is Abrupt Much? Question mark. Because it's very abrupt, the way this book kind of ends. Like, uh, we've been following the, li- the, the life of the church from, from Jesus' ascension and, and the Great Commission and the Holy Spirit coming and it going, f- it going out through the apostles initially and then being extended to the Gentiles through Paul. I mean, just, just we've followed this, this morphing of the church and as it has grown, and we follow really in many ways – the Christian, the latter half of the book, the Christian life of Paul and the missionary work that he has done, and it sort of ends without giving us any concrete ending. It just sort of ends. Um, so if you remember last week, for those of you that might not have heard it yet or, or, or weren't here, we uh, 
we left off with um, kind of the scene, like I paint the picture like Moana, right? So if you've seen Moana, you'll get this. Moana tries to breach the the little bay area of her island because there's like a reef, right? And so it causes the waves to break on the reef and then break into the uh, the little cove. And so she has to like cross over it. Well, we left last week, right, with Paul having crash landed in much in that fashion, trying to enter the beach area. The They did not know there was a, a, a reef. And so they struck the reef because of the big storm. And Paul and these 276 souls that were on the boat were all completely saved, though the, the boat was destroyed and everything on it. Right, so so we left them with their ship like sinking on the reef, and people floating on wood and swimming to shore, and they come up on this beach of an island, and that's really where we left off last week. It was kind of like a real like lost scenario for those of you that were fans of the show. Um, I was a fan of the show, and I'm currently rewatching the series. I plan to just stop before the last season because it doesn't really matter. But uh, the first several seasons are very entertaining. Um, but it's, it's this real, like, lost scenario where people are being saved. And, in fact, in fact, like Lost, if you've ever seen it, really the question is how. How are these people alive? That's the question we would ask ourselves. Because considering how many people tend to die in modern shipping accidents, and we actually have, like, advanced technology, and we actually have lifeboats for everyone that is on board, that there's space for everyone on the, the, consider Considering those those factors that 276 people on this boat all lived is crazy, right? That's insane. That's the story we we have left off with. So we're going to pick up the reading this week in Acts 28. It's very simple. If you'd like to find Acts 28, find Romans in your Bible and go back a page. It's the very last chapter in Acts. So that's how you can find our chapter today in your Bible. So we're in Acts 28. We're going to do the whole chapter and be left wondering where the rest of the book is. Why did Luke stop writing? Uh, so we're going to start. We are going to start that now. Um, the only scripture that I've not put on a slide today is indeed Acts uh, twenty-eight. So you're going to have to read along with us. But there are going to be some verses that I'm going to put up on the screen, and that'll be helpful for us as we go. Um, we're going to cover the first ten verses here, and it starts out just like the we see that the book kind of ends abruptly. So is this interesting way that this chapter starts out? So our first point is yay. What? It's like exciting. Yay! Because they're all saved, right? But then it's like, I don't understand what just happened. All right, so let's let's kind of read here and get a little feel for this, and then we'll set the scene. Uh, starts like this, Acts 28.1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, which is, which is not just something you put in a milkshake. Okay, it's also an island. Uh, the native people... Your, uh, your, depending on what translation you read, might say islanders or barbarians. <clears throat> I feel like I'm really loud. Am I really loud? Uh, no, not really loud. I just echoing to me, to me. All right. Again, I have the sniffles. Maybe I'm just hearing confused, confusedly. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. That's yay. That's all yay right there, right? But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the vi- on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said one to another, no doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped the sea, justice, which is probably capitalized in your Bible, uh, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, 
shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune came to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place where uh, now in that neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. All right, this is the whole story of what happens at the island of Malta. So I want to give you a good picture of what has happened. Um, so we know that, if you'll remember with me, we talked about when they had actually set sail and how it was probably not the best time to set sail, but they really wanted to push out into sea. And they left that little port. Remember, we called it, it sounds like a really nice place in like maybe like, um, oh, well, what did I say? Jeez. Like Nantucket. It sounds like Sweet Haven. It's Fair Haven, right? They left this this little this little not apparently well protected um Wow, words are not coming to me today. Seaport. We'll just call it that. All right, so they left this little seaport. It was not well protected for the winter. They didn't want to try to winter there in case the ship become damaged or they become stuck. They wanted to leave it, right, and make better transitions. They wanted to actually end up landing in the port of Phoenix, which had a nicer harbor to um, kind of stay the winter at. And it was at the end of the, the what they called the fast, right, what Paul called the fast, right, which would have been uh, the fast around the Day of Atonement. So we're looking at around the end of September, October, somewhere in there, they were leaving again, lunar calendar, so it could shift to two or plus weeks in either direction. So, uh, so it's somewhere in there they left. Now it's coming up on winter. After November, no ships would ever sail in, in the Mediterranean because the winter was very harsh, bad storms, very difficult seas. Um, so they're right up on the time when they probably shouldn't have gone out, right? So leaving the port of Fairhaven, they actually are blown some 500-plus miles off course. They are literally now 600 miles west of Fairhaven at the island of Malta. Now, where is Malta? So you can put that map up, and I'll, I'll show you, even though you can't quite tell. All right. So the map is uh, Paul's journey to Rome. So what we've done is we've, we've covered this part. All right, where's my pointer? I can't see it. That's the, oh, no. Oh, no. I pressed power. I pressed power. It's okay. I wasn't pointed at it. It should be fine. There's the pointer. All right. So we, we started over here. Why is it going away? Stay lit. Oh, it's tired. Right, we started over here. See the flashing laser light? And then we traveled all the way around, right? And we came, right, and started our, our crazy journey from over in here. And then we, we, we traveled down, and we traveled down. And we travel into the sea where there's a storm. Two weeks at sea, they spend in the storm being blown all around. All the way over here is Malta. So over here at that little point, if you see the red dot blinking, is Malta. That's where they are currently. Malta is some 60 miles south all right, of Sicily. So that's where they are. They're actually really close to Rome, but nobody ever wants to sit. Like, as a ship, that's, these are not big ocean liners like you're thinking of ships. These ships are made of wood, all right? They don't want to sail in that much open sea, but the storm forced them, right, 500-plus miles, of course, 600 miles to the west, and they end up at Malta. Malta actually, 
All right. Despite maybe what translation you might have read, it may have translated that, that the islanders, right, which still also sounds pretty primitive, it might have translated it barbarians. It's actually a really uh, great island for, for trade. It has lots of good ports in it. Um, now, they, they shouldn't have sailed into the one they did. <laughs> they didn't, again, it was a storm. They didn't know there was a reef there. They, had to, they were just trying to save the lives, right? But, but it has lots of good ports. In fact, on the other side of the island, there's going to be good ports. We're going to see that they're going to sail from that. That's how they're going to end up leaving. Um, and Malta's a great trade island. But the reason they call them barbarians is not because, like, don't actually think Moana, all right? Think this is still, like, modernized Roman territory. But these particular individuals did not speak... Greek. Greek was, Koine Greek was the, the language of the entire country. So when it translates them as islanders or barbarians or primitives, it's simply saying non-Greek speaking, all right? They either spoke their own language or own dialect, but they did not speak Koine Greek. And so they were barbarians, right? This kind of sounds really harsh, but it's all it meant non-Greek speaking. So they have their own, they have a bit of their own culture. They haven't been totally permeated and are unwilling to give up their language. They have their own language, but they have great ports. So they have trade, they have mercantile things going on, and that's, that's kind of the island of Malta. Apparently the people there are very kind, right? So, so again, it's cold during the storm season, right? It's like wintertime. So we know now they're probably well into November, uh, on, as far as a timeline, because the storm lasted a, a little over two weeks, right? They were being blown all around the Mediterranean until they ended up at Malta. So we're into November now. It is, it's cold, all right? If you look on a map, uh, you know, temperature zones run, if you look on a globe, let's do a globe. Temperature zones run like bands across the globe. Uh, their, their temperature zone is similar to our temperature zone in that it, winter is cold, um, Right? But you all walked in today. It was windy and blustery. And uh, what, not, what, what month are we in? We're in November. All right. I don't really want to be on a boat today. Just saying. All right. And that's the time of year that they were spending at sea in the Mediterranean. So they come ashore and the people automatically start showing them hospitality and kindness and they build a what? What do they build? A fire. Okay. You were just going through the things. All right. It's a Bible. What did they build? They built an altar. They built a house. What did they build? They built a fire because it's cold. So they're bringing all the cold people in, all 276 people, right? And they're trying to build fires for these people. Good idea. Very kind. And here's where it gets a little weird. So you've got two stories in rapid succession. Now that you have a good picture of where they are, two stories happen in rapid succession. All right? There's those dang vipers and dysentery. They both start with Ds. Dang vipers and dysentery. Vipers doesn't, but Dang does, so go with it. What happens is Paul, trying to add sticks to the fire, picks up a bundle of sticks, right, gathers some sticks, and puts it on the fire. What happens with um, snakes, I don't know if you're aware aware of this, if they're caught in cold, they become very stiff because are snakes warm-blooded? No, they are cold-blooded, which means their body temperature actually begins to adapt to the temperature that is in their environment around them. That's why lots of times they like to be warm. So when you see snakes and lizards sunning themselves, it's because they want to be warm. When you see them in shade, it's because they want to be cooler. They have to regulate their own body temperature. The snake would have probably been pretty stiff until it got thrown into the fire, (laughs) in which case it would have become significantly less stiff. All right. So as the snake's uh, body temperature begins to cool, it actually slows down and stiffens. So Paul's gathering up some sticks. It's dark, okay? He's gathering up some sticks in the dark. He doesn't really quite realize that he's picked up a snake. 
right, amongst all these sticks, throws them in the fire. The snake gets upset. Paul's right there. It slithers out and bites him on his hand. Literally, Paul, it says, it says the snake is hanging from Paul's hand. Now, these islanders have lived on the island for a while, all right? So when the islanders see this snake bite him and, and they're concerned, it's not because they're like, oh, look, the little gardener snake bits Paul in the hand. Oh, it's really dangerous. No, they're going to be able to say, like, uh, you don't want to get bit by that snake. That's a bad snake to get bit by. And they're thinking, right? Again, this is going to speak to something that we're going to see as a, as a kind of a, a theme throughout this particular chapter. They're very superstitious, as we've seen, right? So we talked about um, last week how the 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 I was going to say the seamen, right, were very superstitious people traditionally throughout all of the known lands. Since we've seen, since we've done the story of Jonah to now, seamen are very, very superstitious. They believe in the gods. They believe in gods that are actually driven by emotion and whimsy, and they're they're very, very superstitious about things. Well, so are the people on the island, right? And here's what they say, right? They say, oh, Paul, he survived a storm, which is a miracle, but it turns out he must be some sort of very evil person because a snake has bitten him, and he's going to die now. Certainly, death caught him in the end, and justice, right, has prevailed, as if justice here is a prevailing thought that is overarching, and you can't run from justice, and justice has gotten Paul. So they don't expect him to die. So Paul has this viper hanging on his hand, right? And he literally, like, shakes the thing off into the fire, right? And just keeps living. He just keeps, he's just talking. It was like, oh, dang. Got bit by a snake. And they're literally watching him. Like, now it's like a spectacle. So now Paul, you know, he's been talking and stuff, and he's been, you know, communicating how Paul always does. Usually Paul is talking about the what? The gospel. That's usually what Paul, we find Paul doing. So Paul's now, you know, helping people. He's speaking to people, having conversations. Now the Maltons, I don't really know what to call them. I've, I've thought about it for a little bit. And Maltons is fun to say. So the people of Malta, the Maltons, are watching Paul. They're watching Paul to see, is he going to swell up? Is he just going to fall over dead? He's, he's, something bad is going to happen to him. That snake is poisonous. He's going He's going to get sick and die. <laughs> That's what they're expecting Paul to have happen. And Paul does not swell up. Paul does not faint. Paul does not get a fever. Paul does not fall down dead. He's fine, in fact. <laughs> Completely fine. And the people of the island then do what? As so often happens to Paul, right? They then say, well, clearly this man is a god because he should be dead and he's not. It turns out he's actually protected by the god. So that's our that's our. That's our first little story. They, they, they think he is a god. But then not on top of that, right, there's this man who's very affluent in the area, Publius. It's fun to say his name as well. He's a Molten. There's so many fun words in this chapter. So Publius has a land, a lot of, a lot, a very nice estate. He brings in, we know at least Paul and Luke, he said, because Paul, Luke, as he's writing this, says he took, he took us in, right? We went to stay with Publius. So he's taken a few of them in. They've, he's shown them hospitality. And it turns out that as they're there, it, he didn't take him in specifically for this reason, but it turns out as they're there, they find out that Publius's father is very, very sick, like death kind of sick. All right. So apparently he, he, he can't keep any fluids in. He's, he's going to die, all right? This is, there's no way to keep him hydrated. They're not running an IV. He's going to die. And Paul actually heals Publius's father, okay? So now he's better. Everybody hears that the man who should be dead is not dead, and now he's healing people, and everyone brings the sick to Paul. And Paul heals them, and the people and the, the sick and infirm people on this island are healed because of Paul, thus elevating him again to this this status of someone that's very, very, very important. Now, 
The problem is it doesn't give us much onto the conversation of what Paul said. We don't know what Paul has said with this. But what we do know, if you think back, right, to another story in Acts, we do know that Paul has been has had this particular scenario happen before. So, Amy, if you find Acts 14, 15 and put it up, I want to read. This is what Paul said at another location. And I'll, I know you all remember where he was, right? Acts 14. You all remember, right? You guys remember? Anybody remember? No? You should all go back and look and find out where he was in Acts chapter 14. But they accused him of being a God because, again, he had healed people. And here's his communication. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This is how Paul deals with people that say, hey, you must be a God, you're healing people. He says, no, 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 there's a living God. Please don't worship me. I'm just like you. I just know the living God. You should know him too. So, so I just want you to know, these things are happening. They're saying, Paul, you're a God. Paul is going to be using the same message he has always used throughout Acts. I'm not a God. I'm just a guy. You need the living God. And so in essence, Paul here, although he never intended to go to Malta, gets to plant right the gospel, the seeds of the gospel at Malta with this non-Greek speaking people. Right now, the reason the word of God and the gospel spread as it could is because Koine Greek was the la- was the language of the land that Paul is now able to not only come to a place where Koine Greek is not spoken. Right? There is no church at Malta that we know of. And he's able to give the gospel to a vast number of people on this island because of the healing. Right, First of all, he's not dead from the snake and because of the healing of many. And so the gospel now is, has been has been dropped into Malta right, in a crazy way. First of all, they've seen 276 people live from a shipwreck. Right, They literally, you have to understand this, they were probably waiting to fish dead bodies out of the water. No dead bodies came onto shore. None. Because everyone lived off of this shipwreck. Paul didn't die from the poisonous snake. He healed Publius' father and then a lot of other people sick on the island. So now he's got an audience to give the gospel. And that's what happens at Malta. Um, there's next is this, we're going to look at this really interesting section. Because remember, Malta's great. It's great to stay at Malta. But, but they need to get to Rome. Now, they had to stay there the winter. Don't forget this. So what, what's going to happen is we're going to cover basically the time of Malta is about three months. It's going to push them into February now, all right? That's, that's kind of what happens here. And we get this interesting – it's kind of an interesting section of Scripture that Luke includes because it's kind of – well, let's just read it because I think there's something really interesting to pull out of it. I think he has – nothing Luke has written in the book of Acts has ever been unintentional. He's been very, very intentional with how he communicates in this book. So uh, verses 11 through 16, let's cover them. They're finally, this is it, all right? The, the title of this point is we've made it because we're finally going to get to Rome in these next few verses. Finally, the journey is, is over. Starting in verse 11, after three months, that's how long they spent in Malta, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island. They actually wintered in a port that they should have wintered and didn't get caught in a two-week storm. <clears throat> it was a ship of Alexandria, much like the ship that they were on. So it's probably a grain vessel, very large, able to hold a lot of people. That's the whole idea. Here's the interesting, what I think is very interesting that it includes, with the twin gods as a figurehead. We're going to talk about that. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived in Rigium. We're just going to say that fast. And after, <clears throat> and after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli, right? This is all very, it's all very Italian. There were, there we found brothers and were inv- invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. 
and the brothers there, when they heard of us, came as, came as far as the forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. All right, we finally have made it to Rome. But there's just some interesting pieces. I, for some reason, the two weeks at sea, we have so much detail on it. It was great because what we saw was God really working to allow Paul to help save a ship, not just from destruction, but also give the gospel and save souls. There were people that were listening to the gospel as they were on that boat and seeing Paul and his, and his God act in a way that were miraculous. Then he lands at Malta, another place where he's able to give the gospel through God's miraculous work and share with people that don't even speak the Greek language. Now we have this journey that takes them all the way to Rome, and it's like that. Literally, we have all of, uh, what, five verses, right? right? Five, six verses here, and that gets us from 60 miles south of Sicily on a little island called Malta to Rome. That's great, all right? So I'm, I'm all about some brevity here because it was, you know, a lot for the past two weeks. So here, uh, he includes this very interesting thing about the boat. What we know about the boat is, is basically saying, hey, this is boat is similar to the other boat. It's big enough to carry all these people. That's all he's saying. But he includes the figurehead of this boat. He actually says that the figurehead is um, of the – wait, where is it? I want to use it as it said. There we go. With the twin gods as a figurehead. Now, you know who the twin gods are, although you don't really know it specifically, right? Have you guys heard of the constellation, or for those of you who may have somehow enjoyed astrology, the astrological sign of Gemini? You heard of this? You've heard of Gemini? All right. Gemini um, is actually attributed to uh, Zeus having slept with Ladia and having two twin sons. They were twin sons, Gemini, the brothers. And so for, for sailors, when, when there, if there was a storm or if there was bad sea, if they were to see the constellation Gemini in the sky, they took it as an, a good omen. The, the twin brothers for sailors meant good fortune would be upon them. The irony here is Paul is he's attaching that to this ship, right? When, when they had just actually been all been saved off of a, which they, they all should have been dead at sea, right? All of the men that are getting on this boat who's, who's banking on the twin gods to save them, right? They, they, that's their figurehead. That's how they're going to sail under. All the men getting on this boat were saved by no gods at all, simply the God, and they know it. Paul was very clear about it. So Paul, I just think it's interesting. Luke includes that little excerpt for us to understand that, again, superstitious men and these men that are about to get on, some of these well-seasoned Sailors are getting onto this vessel, right, having been saved by the living God. It's just pretty creative of Luke to make sure he includes that little piece because we certainly don't necessarily need it. What we do know is that the church at Rome has existed, right? Um, we know it's existed because there's two people we've already talked about that actually came from the church of Rome that were very helpful to Paul in his ministry and also very helpful to Apollos. Do you remember who they were? Couple? It was a couple? It was a husband and a wife? Aquila and Priscilla, they helped cultivate Apollos, right? They, they taught him the, the truth of the gospel, remember? And they also encouraged Paul, right? They actually spent some time living together because they were both tent makers. They actually had come from the church at Rome, the believing church at Rome. So we know there's a church at Rome. And as word spreads up from Malta on that Paul is coming, that this Paul is something of a big deal, right? The church is very encouraged. And so they actually come out to meet Paul as Paul enters Rome. And Paul takes courage. And that's how the beginning of Paul's stay at Rome begins. It's also interesting, right? Again, Paul has this weird Roman situation going on where he is accused, but not really. There's no charges to bring against him. He has appealed to be heard before Caesar. So he has a lot of freedom. He's not condemned like some of the people that were on this boat. He's not. 
Um, so he has, he has a lot of freedom. They're like, oh, look, the guard will go with you. Look, Paul could have ran away so many times, right? Paul is obviously not what you would call a flight risk. He needs no bail. He is going to do exactly as he's supposed to do. So they're like, look, the soldier's going to go with you. Really, by now, you've got to feel like this guard that's been with Paul, like each, each particular case like this would have had a specific soldier assigned to it, a, a guard in charge of that person that made sure they didn't escape. You've got to feel like this guard, right? This guy, this guard's probably saved by now, right? I mean, how can you hang out with Paul for this long and not be like, oh my gosh, I believe in your God, stop talking to me, right? Like, right, at some point, like, don't you feel like he just broke under the pressure and the weight of the Holy Spirit and Paul? All right, anyway. So this guard goes with Paul now, um, and, and Paul has much freedom as he enters into Rome. Because he's, he's, he's not even formally accused of anything as a Roman citizen. So what's going to happen now um, is this whole process is going to begin to take place where there was supposed to be, right, there was supposed to be formal charges sent from, we, we left off with Festus, right? He was supposed to send some sort of formal charges with Paul. There was supposed to be something to give, but there's really nothing to give. So maybe the Jews would have sent something. We're going to trace, Paul's going to begin to make inroads, right, with the Jewish community in Rome, because that's really where the problem lies. If he's going to stand before Caesar, he's going to need accusers. He's trying to, going to try to build up what has happened so that the Jews there in Rome know, because they might not know. And if they do know, Paul wants to know what they know. So he's like, I think we should set up a meeting. So, so our, next, our next section really starts two interactions with the Jews there in Rome. Picking up the reading in verse 17, we'll have the first interaction. This is the Hebrew Roman Council, part one. It says this, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they, exa- when they had examined me, uh, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the, for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. From this, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing these chains." And they said to him, we, had re- we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported of, uh, or spoken any evil about you. But we do desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, okay, the sect of the way, the, the Christians, we know that everywhere it is spoken against them. Um, so, so here's what happens. He gathers them all together, and Paul's going to begin to pull on strings for these Jewish believers. All right, so uh, let's, let's, let's go big. Let's go big here. Every time Paul speaks, right, what is his goal to get to every time? Gospel. You've got to be tired of that. It's like such a great answer for Acts, okay? When we go to the next section of Scripture, it's probably not going to be the answer every time, but it's still a good answer to say. So I'm just saying you can always throw out the gospel. The gospel, Paul always wants to get to the gospel. So understand he is not just trying to set up, hey, what's going on? Have you heard anything? This is what's happened to me. I want you to know and be aware of it. I'm trying to be really open and upfront with you. His goal is always to get to the gospel. So he's with these Jewish leaders in Rome, and he says... I'm going to give him the gospel at some point. Let me begin to set and lay that tone down. So here he actually sets up this dichotomy with the Roman Jews. Now, again, uh, the, the Roman culture, right, the Jews ultimately want to, want to do what with Rome? Overthrow it. They want to overthrow Rome. Rome is their overlords, right? In fact, so this will help us out later just so you can be in this thinking, right? Um, what did the Jews expect Messiah to do? 
crush the Romans, destroy the Romans, right? Messiah was supposed to be conquering king. Literally, Messiah means, right, right, our anointed king or our anointed savior. That's what Messiah means. And they expected that to be conquering king. That's why Jesus enters to a triumphal entry when he goes to, to Jerusalem during Passover week. It is triumphant. They are literally like they're, they're treating him like David, right? They're ushering him into this city in this jubilant thing. Turns out, right, he didn't do much overthrowing of Rome. They end up killing him because he was not the Messiah that they wanted. But like Batman, he was the Messiah they needed. All right. So, so that's what happens with Jesus. You have to remember that that's their view of Messiah. That's what they want. So he automatically says, right, he's, he's doing this contrast, right, that he's going to have to go before Rome, but the Jews have accused him, though he's done nothing to the Jews. And almost he, you feel like he's going to begin to play this card like, why would you want me to go before Rome? I'm a Jew, right? We're, we're supposed to stick together. Right? Us Hebrews got to sit together against these evil Romans, right? And he begins to pull on this language, right? He actually says that it is because of the hope of the nation of Israel that I am in chains. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am in chains. What is the hope of Israel? We just talked about it. Messiah. All right. The hope of Israel is Messiah, so anointed Savior coming to save them. It's because of that that I am in change. And they say, okay, okay, okay. We like, we, we're hearing what you're saying. We're, we're kind of understanding that you have some, some, some flavor here to, of, of Jewish. You obviously know what you're talking about. You're well-educated here. Um, we have questions about this whole Messiah thing, uh, this Jesus situation. We've heard that everyone else is like really against it. We're, you can feel like this Roman church is a little different. They're closer to Rome. They are experiencing the freedoms of Rome. It's maybe not as militant as it was in Israel where like, Jerusalem is and the center of all of Judaism is here. It seems like it's a little more like, look, Rome. Rome we understand, but Rome, Rome. We we live with Rome here. Rome is a part of our culture. They are over us, but they give us the freedom to worship. Um, you feel like almost like they're very Roman. These Hebrews, but what with living in Rome and all, um, and so and so these these particular Jews they don't they don't really hate the Christians like it seems it has been in other places. They're a little bit removed and separated from that particular philosophy that was flowing from Jerusalem. Apparently it's a little harder to get across the sea as much. Uh, so the the Jew the Jew hate hasn't really come over that way. That's not anti-Semitism, that's anti-Christianity. That's the Jew hate I was talking about particularly. Right? The Jews haven't the hate the hate, hateful Jews haven't come over to hate Christianity in Rome yet. We like to hear about this Christian sect because we we hear that it's a bad thing but we we don't really know. And that's how this council kind of ends. So the next day, what's going to happen is even more Hebrew leaders are going to come, and Paul is going to have an even larger audience where he's going to begin to unpack and answer some of their questions. And we're going to pick that reading up in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at, at his lodging in greater numbers. From mor- now Listen, this is how long it was. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. So now we have the hope of Israel and the kingdom of God. These two things together are ideas that the Jews would have identified. And trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, that's the whole of the Tanakh, the whole of the Old Testament that they would have known. And some were convinced, right? This is Now, now we're into like really, really familiar territory. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves... They departed after Paul had made one statement. So finally, at the end of the day, after he's answered their questions, they've talked back and forth, some people are believing, right? Some of the, some of the Hebrews are like, holy, oh, holy us, right? 
I can't believe this. Jesus is real. The Messiah has come. We believe. And then some are like, we this Jesus isn't real. I mean, it can't be It can't be the Messiah. All right? The Messiah is supposed to throw, overthrow Rome. We have a totally different picture of Messiah. I don't care what the law said. The law was indicating that he's supposed to overthrow Rome, and he didn't overthrow Rome, so it couldn't be Jesus, right? That's the battle that they're having. So now half of them are like, yeah, Jesus. And half of them are like, no way. And then they're having their own little argument now. And now Paul's like, oh, great. This is what happens every time. Now I have no, I have no voice here, right? I've given the gospel, you know, praise Jesus. Half have really seemed to have believed. The other half have actually specifically disbelieved is the word it uses there. And Paul's going to send them away now with one statement. So, so here's his statement. If you're in, um, if you're in a Bible or even in your, your, your phones, it should kind of indent what is about to be said because what he's going to do is quote the Old Testament here. Here's what he says. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely Hear and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. That's how Paul ends. That's pretty emphatic. And literally, they leave, right, Paul, arguing amongst themselves, the believing and the disbelieving, trying to dissuade each other. Paul, having laid on, on the disbelieving this really heavy, heavy burden. Just like Isaiah had said. Now, he's quoting um, from Isaiah, I believe. I'm going to say 619, but my phone turned off. Let's see how good I, I remembered. Did I, put it, did I put it on the screen? Is it on the screen? Yes, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. So 19, if you added 9 and 10, that was close. Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Um, and here, it's, it literally is what he is saying to them is exactly what the Isaiah was told to say to the Israelites. There's no, don't get a veiled meaning, don't peel too deep into the prophecy, right? Right. God sent this message to Isaiah. Tell the people that their, their eyes and ears have been turned off to everything that I've, I've shown them, everything I've given them by salvation they've ignored. That's what he's saying. Look, look, if you want to disbelieve, it's fine. Understand, these are, Isaiah was writing this about you. It's really great that Paul was so trained in, in, in Judaism that he pretty much knew the law and, and the prophets. He, he knew it all. And so he throws Isaiah down at them and tells them to leave because the Gentiles will take this gospel and they will listen. Now, if you've been following along in your Bibles, you're going to say, we only have two verses left. I feel like there's probably more to this story. You are absolutely Correct. There has definitely got to be more to this story because there's two verses left. And unless they have, what, uh, lots of trials and Paul writes lots of letters and does lots of work in the next two verses, we seem to be missing some stuff, right? Um, Paul has not yet written his prison epistles, which, you know, it turns out are the prison epistles because he writes them from an elongated stay in prison. Um, he, he actually has a couple more places he's going to go. Paul does end up going to Spain. He, he's not been to Spain yet. We're missing some parts of the story. So let's kind of, I just want to wrap up these last two verses so you can get the feeling for this. Oh, um, the, the, two, the two points I wanted to make about the kingdom and the hope, they're hoping the Messiah, who's not the Messiah that they wanted, but the Messiah they needed, Jesus, right? And this idea that Paul constantly attaches that, the, idea, the term the kingdom when he speaks to the Jews. The reason he attaches the term the kingdom is because it does talk about Messiah coming. It does speak to resurrection. It also ultimately speaks to the fact that 
one day Jesus will establish his anointed people, his chosen people that he has specifically chosen. And they are the Jews, as well as those of us that are his children as well. The Jews are still very special to Jesus. The Hebrew nation that he set up is special to God. He set them up specifically because they were his people. And so as as Paul speaks about the kingdom, he's trying to appeal to the fact that, that they are God's people. And so when he speaks about the hope of Israel being Messiah and the kingdom, he is speaking to the, the, the Hebrews in ways the Hebrews should understand. Yet they ignore it. And that's his point for quoting Isaiah. The last two verses, though, wrap up this way. What we see basically is Paul unchained these last two verses. And that's really kind of our last point. It says he lived there two whole years at his own expense. Um, kind of what it means here is, well, the Jews didn't have an accusation, right? There was no Judean letter. They hadn't said over word from Caesarea. There was nothing to accuse Paul of. So why would Paul go before Caesar? We're not wasting Caesar's time here with this. Paul, in essence, in some sort of morphic way, it's kind of like, well, we got nothing, Paul. So now Paul is just basically in Rome. In essence, Paul has journeyed through Rome, giving the gospel, journeyed to Rome the whole way on someone else's dime, <laughs> giving the gospel wherever he is going, saving lives both literally and spiritually, right, both physically and spiritually, and has ended up Rome where he was hoping to get to anyway, right, for free. And now Paul is going to experience this freedom in Rome. Literally, he lived there two whole years at his own expense, right? That's in his own house, totally free, not under guard, and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God. Again, attaching it back to that mentality that God is going to establish his kingdom. He has, he has chosen the Hebrew nation and expanded and, and, and grafted in the Gentiles, and that's the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Literally, Rome ends up being this wonderful, like, freeing place for Paul, where he spends two years, right, making tents and whatnot, making some money, renting a home, and having, like, giant Bible studies. That's what Paul does for two years, sharing the gospel in Rome, encouraging the church, establishing the church, bringing order to it, and growing it for two years in Rome. So he's, he's been, he, what started out like, like really bleak, dark days where he's like having to be rescued by the Romans from the Jews who are just beating him just because they're just angry at him, right? Now ends up that he, they take him finally to Rome where he was hoping to get, where, where Jesus told him he would go and have to testify, right? Have to testify to Jesus. He would be a testimony for Jesus in Rome. He is being a testimony for Jesus in Rome. And he is experiencing complete and total freedom to be as bold as he wants. Amazing, right? Absolutely awesome. But throughout this chapter, it's interesting to me. And it, and it ends in a I think this is really, I want to take note of the fact how the book ends, right? The book ends with Paul proclaiming the gospel. Um, it's similar to the way the book begins in that you need to go and make disciples. That's kind of how, as with Jesus' ascension, comes the Great Commission and the commandment to go forth and make disciples. In fact, I wanted to read that with you in kind of a response, how this book kind of ends. I want to read two passages with you. One we've looked at before, you'll remember, it's called the Shema. The Shema means, Shema. The Shema means what? Do you remember what it means? The word Shema? We talked about it. It's also the first word. This is not me asking you to listen. This is what does Shema mean? It means, means... Hear, right? Remember? Hear, O Israel. Shema. Shema means hear or listen. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. One's that cool word, echad, 
It's a Hebrew word that means one but more than one. Like you have an echad of grapes, right? You have you have grapes, right? And it's like you never just have a, like necessarily a grape if you have grapes because grapes come on a cluster. It is one cluster, but it is many grapes. That's the word echad because God is a triune God. So look, there's lots of places for you to ask questions, by the way, this week. If you want to hashtag AskMDNJ, I'm throwing lots of things out there. You could definitely pop some interesting theological questions about. This is indeed the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And here's also important. And these words that I command you today shall shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Right? That is, in essence, it's the Hebrew Great Commission. I just want you to understand something. That's what the Shema is. Your God is one. Love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, and tell everyone everywhere you go. That's the great commission for the Hebrews. Jesus then says it again, if we turn to Matthew, actually it's up on the screen, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, this is what Jesus says as he literally ascends. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That's important to note because what he's about to say is very, very authoritative, all right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, go make disciples and baptize them. That's basically bring people to understand the salvation that is in me and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, right? Go and make disciples and baptize them. Bring them into the family of God. Just like the Shema says, the Shema says, go and as you are going, go and teach your children, go and talk about this as you sit at your house, go and talk about this as you sit by the way, go and talk about this as you lie down, go and talk about this as you rise up, right? That's the Shema. Here, go and make disciples everywhere of all nations. Go and don't stop going until everyone knows about Jesus. That's what the Great Commission is. Go and as you're going, tell everyone. Not just to bring them into salvation, right? but to also teach them diligently. That's the part that the church really plays, to teach them diligently what God has commanded. What does God actually want for us to do? What would he call us to actually do? That's, that's teaching them diligently. And on top of that, his encouragement is, I will never, ever, ever, I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you. I will always, always be with you wherever you are, no matter what it's like, no matter the circumstances, I am with you. And so it's really appropriate, right, as Luke ends the, the, the acts of the apostles, the works the apostles did, the beginning of the church, the birth and, and growth of the church that he ends it with, and Paul told everybody about Jesus. Everybody. Paul spent two years, right, making money so that he could then spend it having dinner with people to share the gospel with them. That's all Paul did. It said, when it says that he lived at his own expense, he didn't ask the church for money. He made money so that he could give the gospel. That's all he did. He made money so that he could have a house. He had a house so that he could bring people in. He brought people in so that he could share dinner with them and tell them about Jesus. That's what Paul did for two years. And so, it's an interesting week. There's, there's not a lot of visitors here. I, we all know each other. People that you, If you're sitting in this room, you know each other, and I know you, and I know what you know is the gospel. Someday, that may not be able to be said. I may not know everyone in the room, but I do know everyone in the room this week, and we all know the gospel. I know the gospel, and you know I know it. 
the purpose of this week is, as the book of Acts ends, by the way, it doesn't end here. Paul has many more years to do some stuff. So you do get one more week of Acts. We just can't do it in the actual book because that's the last verse. So there's no more of the book. But I don't know if you're like me. I really need to know what happens to Paul. So that'll be next week. What, what, happens, what happens to Paul? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, Paul dies. He's not alive today. We know that he's dead. He does die at some point. How? What does he do? What happens next? Why, Luke? Why? It's like a good book that you've read and you want more and you, and you don't know why the book had to end. Have you, anybody had that? Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. You can go back and check that out. It's a Newbery Book Award winner. Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Great book. It's one of the first books I read, and it ended, and I didn't want it to end, and I was very sad that it actually ended. I vividly remember this as a child. That's what happens with Acts. It just kind of ends. And it ends specifically for us Christians as this. Family of God, ready? We need to tell everyone about Jesus. It is very simple. It's very simple. Now, what's awesome this week is I know in the little kids' class, they're actually getting evangelism. For parents, pay attention. Um, in, in the little kids' class specifically, it's you need to tell everybody about Jesus because for the little kids, they always make it everything and always all about Jesus, all right? So it's tell everyone about Jesus. Hey, that's what the adults are learning. Tell everyone about Jesus, all right? From the Shema, which if you actually go to look for it in a section of Scripture, it will come up as the, the great command or the great commandment, right? Know God and tell everyone about him. To the great commission, it's to the great commandment, the great commission. They both start with greats and C's, right? The great commandment to the great commission, right, is go tell everybody about Jesus. So what I, what I want to encourage you is sometimes we, we're not ignorant, right? I literally got a call last night um, Pat's teaching the little kids, and she said, I have a concern. And I said, okay. I'm teaching the kids this curriculum. Now, I don't make the curriculum. We have a fantastic curriculum, D6 curriculum, which is great. Um, so she's, so I, she's kind of actually informing me about what the lesson is. I don't actually know what the lesson specifically is. And she says, the lesson's about telling people about Jesus, and it actually has this, this section, this activity, where we have different, it's really hot, really hot today. I'm like literally sweating. All right, anybody else? Amen? Whew. All right. The spirit's moving, I guess. There's literally, you go in, if you go into the kids' room, when you go, if, you should all do that. Go in and look. There's literally pictures of people taped up. And the purpose of that is at, at the activity in the lesson is to go to those, go, go find the person and sit at the picture, right? And then the teacher comes over and says, how would you tell this person about Jesus? Now, her concern was, I don't want there to be a stranger danger situation. There's not a lot in the lesson to say about when and where and how we should do this. I don't want the kids to just be like, like outside one day and then just running off and starting telling people about Jesus because they should, but I don't want them to happen, right? And one of the stories is the Ethiopian eunuch, and you know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Now, did Philip, when he met the Ethiopian eunuch, did he know the Ethiopian eunuch? No, literally, it was one of those miraculous situations where Philip was in one place, Philip the evangelist, and then magically, not magically, supernaturally, that's what you should actually say, or magic, it doesn't really matter, God, God does what he wants, was with the eunuch, you want to think he Harry Pottered him? Sure, but Harry Potter's not real. God is. All right. So there is, there he is with the eunuch. That's what happens. He's in one place. Now he's in another place. And I said, well, mom, honestly, if Kylie is transported magically to another location, specifically around someone, I really hope she tells him about Jesus because that's pretty crazy and that's probably what she should do. But since that's not the context, right? <laughs> that's not the context. I, I kind of said, just couch every conversation that you begin, say, and if you were with your mommy and daddy, how would you tell this person about Jesus? And then I said, just by including that simple sentence, it makes sure the kids know and identifies that they're not just running around telling everyone about Jesus 
in a very unsafe manner, they're with their parents because the, the curriculum probably intends to know that. And by saying it every time, it gives the kid that context. So that was a good question. Very important. But it's the same message for us, right? I mean, how would you tell them about Jesus? Because you're supposed to tell them about Jesus. And sometimes we couch this idea about evangelism specifically just in this. Um, we need to have relationship before we can tell people about Jesus. That's really important if you want people to understand what you're saying and actually give credibility to it. That doesn't mean that you always, only, ever always need a relationship before you tell somebody about Jesus. Sometimes you might only have a small interaction with somebody and they are hurting or they are broken or you need to be listening to the things that they're talking about because what they're talking about are deep eternal things and you need to actually mention the name of Jesus to them. Because here, O Israel, I am one, and wherever you go, tell them about them. Teach your children diligently, right? Start at home. And then when you're going, tell those people, right? And then, and then before you go to sleep, you should be talking about me. And then when you rise up, you, you should be talking about me, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, of all people everywhere, And baptize them. Make sure that they know that they can be committed to me. And then teach them everything I've taught you. And never remember that I'm always, never forget that I'm always going to be with you. That's the point. I think Luke is driving home at the end of this. And it contrasts the superstition of the chapter. From the people thinking justice will prevail. He's gotten bit by a viper. No, God, God, God will prevail. Right? (laughs) To the sailors thinking, we have Gemini to hold up. You will keep us safe. And everyone there knows, no, Paul's God will definitely keep you safe. The the living God, the true one that created heaven and earth and all things in it. The Jews starting their argument yet again over Messiah is supposed to be what I want. No, Messiah is supposed to be what I want. No, Messiah is what the Bible says. Messiah is exactly who he is because Messiah is God and he is our Savior. And now Paul's free. And now Paul's giving the gospel because that's all Paul knows he should do. So here's what I want you to know. Paul woke up in the morning. He went to work making tents, whatever that is. I don't do much tent work. Perhaps it's patching or stretching or I don't know, nailing. I don't know. I'm not not a big tent guy, all right? I have a tent. I know how to put it up. I know how to clean it and put it down. That's pretty much it. I didn't make it. He also didn't have nylon. It was leather work. It was probably interesting things he was doing with leather and whatnot. He woke up. He went to work. He did that. While he was there, he talked about Jesus. (laughs) When he was done there, he came home. He got cleaned up. He got dinner together. He had people over. He talked about Jesus. So from the moment Paul woke up to the moment he went to sleep, was going to be doing something, thinking and talking about Jesus. That's what this passage ends. People, where are you? And what are you doing? And when is the last time you mentioned Jesus? When's the last time you mentioned God? When's the last time you mentioned an overarching thought that wasn't simply conservative, but actually God-like? I don't mean like floating and hovering with glowing eyes. I mean like the conversation you were having spoke about God. When was the last time you brought your beguiled morality to bear on the fact that it was because Jesus saved you? When's the last time that happened? Just can you think back to that time? I would encourage you, if you cannot think back to that time, specifically here today, go 
and wherever you go, tell them about me. Because everyone, it's, it's, the, it's the true, no truer words have been said. C.S. Lewis says, you will never meet a mere mortal. It's like Highlander. Everyone you will meet will be immortal. They are all going to live forever. They will either be with God or without him. Those are your two choices. And Paul says, right, how will they hear without someone to tell them? Tell them about Jesus. So it sits well on me. I, I tend to, well, you, like, you all know me. This is not a secret. I'm pretty awkward. And I'm pretty, uh, I can be abrasive, sometimes for God's glory, and at times for my own glory, which is just wrong and evil. And I've probably had to ask forgiveness individually from everyone in this room because of it. But I don't have a problem talking about Jesus. It's never been a problem. You know, maybe I, have, maybe I should do better at maybe, maybe my behavior looking more holy. I don't know. But I, I don't have a problem talking about Jesus to people. So if you ever have a question about how to talk to somebody about Jesus... I can, I can, I'd love to help you. It's one of the few things where I actually feel like I, I, I actually do in the, whole of, in the whole of God's word. <laughs> Holiness, really need help there. But when you want me to talk about Jesus, I can talk about Jesus, absolutely. No problem. And I don't really care what other people think about me when I do it. So I would encourage you that if you have questions, reach out. I would love to talk to you about it. You can text me. You can message me on Slack. If you have a particular person that you'd like to talk about Jesus with, um, ultimately, at some point, what has to happen is you have to temper back how you feel someone's going to feel about you. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. At, at no point in the book of Acts has Paul ever been like, oh, no, what are they going to think about me? No, it's always been, uh, they're really probably going to hate me. How can I get the gospel out before they hate me enough to make me leave? <laughs> that's Paul's. <laughs> I got to get the gospel out before they make me leave. How can I get it? How can I just appease them long enough that the gospel comes out? That's always, that's always how Paul works. So I want to encourage you, family, people that we know, you work with them, I work with them, right? People that we love, you will sit down around the Thanksgiving table with them, right? People that we bump into, you will hold the door at Wawa for them. They need to hear about Jesus. You have been given the gift of the ministry of reconciliation. And you need to tell them about Jesus. So respond is simple. Uh, maybe there's some people in your heart and mind that you could think about and pray about. God, I, I know I need to talk, about that, talk to them about the gospel. I don't know what it's going to mean for me. I don't, wanna, I don't know what it's going to mean for me at work. I don't know what it's going to mean for me um, in our relationship. I don't know what it's going to mean for me in the future of the relationship with this person. And I, I know, though, I do know that they need Jesus. They desperately need you. How? How can I talk to them? Can you, can you help me see it? Can you open my eyes to it? That's the thing to think about today. How? How and when? How and where? What do you want me to say, God? Will you open my eyes to the opportunities? Will you make the opportunities apparent? Will you work in their heart? Pray for them. Work in their heart, God. Just think about them. Or, or if it's more of a general thing. Maybe it's just more general to you. Maybe you don't have specifically anybody in mind. Maybe you just know that you need to do it. And asking God to make your heart just so sensitive to those opportunities. So let's just spend some time in prayer tonight about just evangelism. We don't do that a lot. 
but that's just how the book of how the book of Acts ends. It's like tell everyone about Jesus. So let's pray about that now, and then we'll sing one more song in worship. Soften my heart and break me apart. I need you to open my eyes to see that you're shaping my life. All I am, I serve. To trust when you say that you're good and your love is great. I'm broken inside, I give you my life. I need you. Soften my heart and break me apart. I need you to pierce through the dark and cleanse every part of me. All I am, I 
What do you say that you're good and your love is great? I'm broken inside, I give you my Let's just close in prayer. Dear God, thank you so much 